So what do you do when you first hear about a crisis? Like, what's your first response when something goes bad? Do you panic or do you pray? I mean, think about this. Maybe you got um, a bad report this week. Um, something, you got a phone call from about somebody, that you, somebody you love so much. At first, there were some people were telling me about just some, some calls that they were getting from about their family. It was very disturbing. What do you do when, when you get that phone call? Let me tell you what happened when I got that phone call this week. We had just, uh, our family, it was, um, the family's kind of shrinking a little bit, um, with Jesse off to Heritage. And uh, Luke and Noah and Lori and I went to the movie Overcomer. Anybody seen the movie Overcomer? Okay, like you, it's a great movie. You got to go see this movie. It's, it really encourages you and bless you. Um, and so it's Tuesday night, cheap night, of course, you know me. And um, we, uh, we had uh, gone to see the movie, and we needed to pick up a prescription at Walmart afterwards for Jesse. And so we stopped by Walmart, and I went in to get the prescription. And um, then Luke, our youngest, uh, remembered he needed some more school supplies. So um, Lori and Luke went in, inside to Walmart, and this left Noah uh, in the van, and um, Lori went to, uh, to find me afterwards, and the prescription was taking longer than expected. And Lori's like, you know, I think I better go check on Noah. You know, um, it's kind of dark, and we'll just check and see if he's okay. So she went out there, and uh, just a few minutes later, I got that phone call. And she's like, you got to come quickly. Uh, our car's been tried to be broken into. And so I immediately tell the pharmacist, I'm like, I got to go now. Like, can I get my prescription? And they went quicker all of a sudden. And, um, and I said, to, you know, on the phone to Laura, I said, you need to call 911. And so, you know, uh, apparently what happened is when, when Lori and Luke went inside to, uh, to Walmart, the car right next to us, there was a gentleman that got, not really a gentleman, actually, a guy who got out of, the, out of his vehicle and... Uh, and immediately opened up the door because it was unlocked and started ruffling through all of, well, there's not very many valuables in there, but tried to find some valuables. And he soon discovered, not knowing that Noah was in the car, Noah goes, hey! And the guy took off and ran and um, didn't get much. And uh, uh, by this time, Lori had come out and, and Noah was pretty shook up by that time and explained what happened. And Noah and Jesse just can see everything that goes on. And so I, they, we asked, well, where did they go? And Noah was able to point and describe the person pretty well. And I came out of there, out of that, out of that Walmart, and I was on a mission. Because you don't break into my van, and you don't try to hurt my kid without me going after you. So, <laughs> so, I said, Noah, where were they? And he pointed, they went off that direction, and I ran probably through the parking lot. And I live in the United States, so I know, you know, you got to keep your distance. I don't know if this person has a gun or not. And uh, I, I looked, and I could see two figures, and I just stood there because I knew that their vehicle was still there. And finally, one of them came over. We had already called the police, and it was a, it was a woman that came over. It was the girlfriend of the bad guy. And she's like, you know, my, my boyfriend, I told him not to do it. He's drunk. I'm like, well, we're still calling the police. And the police came and found out that 
this person, they'd been wanted for some time. They'd, been, they'd, they'd had some other uh, struggles, I should put it that way. Never found the bad guy, but here were, here's my, my point. I didn't pray. I panicked. And then when I did pray, I was only praying one prayer, a prayer of justice. God, catch this guy. <laughs> so what do you do when you're in a crisis, when you have a struggle, when you have a difficulty? Let me tell you about a guy named Nehemiah and what he did. Turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah, chapter 1. Nehemiah was written about uh, 2,500 years ago. You can find out all about Nehemiah uh, in your bulletins. I've uh, put kind of just a background to the whole book of Nehemiah. Uh, We're going to be studying Nehemiah um, these next, well, really the fall, Lord willing. And uh, this is the third book in our build series as we go through the Master's Plan 4.0. The Master's Plan 4.0, for those who are new, is our recreation of our property. But it's not just the recreation of our property. This is our uh, attempt to seek God that it would be his plan, our master's plan, to reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples. And so we don't want to just recreate uh, our property. We want to recreate a community. And that this would be a community center where the gospel is preached. And and so um, we think Nehemiah is is a great third step in this build series. The first was we studied Haggai last fall, and in the spring we studied the book of Ezra, and then we carry on through Nehemiah, and then Lord willing, in the springtime we will study Zechariah. And we hope what happened in Nehemiah's day would go way beyond just a restoration of us and a restoration of our church, but the restoration of a whole community. And this will happen in Cambridge and in, in um, Waterloo region, in our, our province, our country, and the whole world as we seek for God to uh, help us to reach at least 1% of the world. Now here's the really neat part we're going to find as, as we go through Nehemiah. When you seek God for restoration, often revival happens. And we would love for revival to happen. Don't you, would you like revival to happen? where people actually say, God, you are all that I want. You're all that I need. That's what we're hoping that would happen as we study through Nehemiah. Now, as we learned last week, Nehemiah, he was serving in his role as cupbearer to the king, which was really the second in command, second kind of most trusted position in the kingdom because he had to taste all the food and all the wine before it got to the lips of the king. It's a very trusted position. He was doing this with excellence, with integrity, but he lacked some compassion because he didn't know what was going on with his brothers, his Jewish brothers way back in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, he gets a report. A crisis hits. And his compassion meter goes up. And here's what we read in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Again, if you can't find this, you can look it up on your smartphone, Google it. We'd love to give you a Bible. Just stop by the Welcome Center afterwards. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital. The Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. 
And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. May God help us to learn today how to respond to crisis, that we would weep and mourn over the right things. You may be seated. I really want to focus in on verse 4 today because it, it, it really focuses on what Nehemiah's response was to a crisis, to a bad report, to a difficulty. He fasted and prayed. Look at verse 4. It says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Those words that stimulated Nehemiah's weeping and mourning are actually found in verse 3 as I read them. Uh, the Jewish remnant there was in great trouble and shame. And the walls of Jerusalem and its gates were destroyed. The aim of today's sermon is for God to break our hearts too. And so I've been asking the Lord, and I would like for you to ask the Lord today, what would make you weep before him? What would you make you weep and mourn? Today may be the simple application for you. We don't have to wait to the end of the services. You say, I'm going to fast for this, God. I'm going to weep over this. I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to commit to fasting and prayer because of this news that I'm deeply disturbed by. From the text, I see three things that stimulated mourning in Nehemiah's life and caused him the right response. Not panic, but prayer. We are trying to build a house of prayer here. That's why the first thing that we're, we're hoping to, to build with our building is a prayer room and, a, and, and eventually a prayer garden. A place where you can come to pray. But we want this to be a place, a house of prayer. There are three, but not limited to causes for mourning that we can have, uh, that we see directly in this text. The first is not surprising. One that you probably can all identify. The first is when your family's in trouble. You know, if your family's in trouble, isn't that going to cause you to, to mourn and to weep and to fast and to pray? I bet for some of you that has happened recently. The, the second we see is when the place of worship is broken. Or we could just say when worship is broken. And then the third area is when the protective barriers, those gates, are destroyed. In other words, in our context, we should fast and pray when there's family troubles, when there's broken worship, and there's a lack of safety should cause us to mourn. I mean, I've been mourning this, this week since that attempted robbery, right? It just reminds me, I'm like, God, there's more people in our community who desperately need Jesus. That's why we're doing this. This is why we go out and we try to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's unpack these further. And, and let's start with the people first because, because people should always come first. We seek God, we love God, and we love people. And really, it begins at home. 
compassion should start with our family. But I tell you, it often doesn't. Why is it that we show so much more compassion for our roommates or our friends or our classmates or, or our coworkers than our spouses and our children and our siblings? I mean, when they're hurt, they're like, go get a band-aid yourself, right? And, and I got to tell you, like, you, some of you know I'm a, our family is a baseball family. And baseball doesn't really help with the compassion meter, like to go up. Because, you know, I, I've seen this so many times. Um, one of our players is up to bat, and their pitcher throws a pitch, and it, it gives them some chin music. It's, it comes, like, almost hits them. And what does all of our teammates say? We got ice. We got ice. In other words, take the pitch, let it hit you so that you get first base and so we can score a run, right? And so that attitude of a lack of compassion gets transferred into our families. Or is that just my family? Is it like, are you the rest of your families? Are you guys got compassion licked, you know, or do you need to grow in compassion in your family? Sometimes we're just too close to notice the hurts, the shame and trouble that our family and loved ones are in. But sometimes they're so far away that we often forget about them. We, don't, we lose touch, right? In fact, that's what happened with Nehemiah, I believe. He had lost touch with his relatives. See, look at verse 1. Go back to verse 1. And we find out where where Nehemiah was. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, the 20th year of, of the reign of King Artaxerxes I, as I was in Susa, the capital. But what, where, were, where were his brothers? Where were they experiencing all the trouble? They were where? Jerusalem, right? And so you can see on this map that I've put up here, like Susa is a long ways, 1,400 kilometers from Jerusalem. That's about the same distance from here to New Brunswick. I was just talking to somebody who was originally from New Brunswick, right? I have distant relatives in New Brunswick. And as I was thinking about it, am I praying for them? Do I care about them? Maybe you've lost touch with your distant family. Do you realize that God puts you in that family. And maybe one of the reasons today was for you to pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Would you pray for your distant relatives who are in trouble and in shame? And, and at first glance, they might not even look like they're in trouble and shame. They may look very successful, very rich, very well off, but they're in trouble and shame because they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't know him as their savior. They've not been restored to God. They're not worshiping God alone. In the case of Nehemiah's relatives, they were in shame because they were former slaves who returned from exile and they had no power. They were trying to reestablish their homeland, but they were a conquered people. And you know what happens when a displaced people comes back to their homeland? They're a threat, right? They're a threat to those people who are living there. I mean, we've seen this even in our own country, right? There's been threats. How some people have felt as our Aboriginal peoples have made land claims. 
Uh, probably, though, the, the one that's most known in history is actually this would happen in the same, the same location that we are studying today in, uh, in the land of Palestine. See, in 1948, the state of Israel was established. And as soon as the Jews came back, there was a war with the Arabs, right? And that war has continued. That's what happens when a displaced people come back. And it was especially true in the promised land. In fact, from 586 B.C., when the Jews were first carted off in, in slavery to Babylon, after cheating on God, to 1948, really from that whole time forward, the Jews had experienced oppression after oppression. And it just hit me. It's like, maybe that prayer, you know that prayer for your distant relatives? Maybe your prayer will now stop generations of shame and trouble. So I'm going to give us an opportunity right now to pray. We're, we want to be a house of prayer. I want you to pray for some people that God's put into your heart, just their first name, distant relatives, and just say, rescue, Lord, and name that person. Just their first name. I'll start. Rescue, Lord. Craig and Lisa, my cousins, save them, God. Anybody else, just, just cry out to God with some names that you want to bring before God, some distant relatives. God, you hear our prayer? Well, we prayed it out loud or not, but there are people in our lives that you've placed, and we, we're desperate for them. We're desperate for them to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. It's corporate prayers. That's one of the things why we do to gather, to pray out loud, to share our prayer requests, and we get to know each other so much better. Thank you for praying. So family would be the first thing that should cause us to mourn. But there's others. Also, our broken worship. In Nehemiah's case, he was devastated to hear that the wall of Jerusalem, look at verse 3, was broken down. Now, the wall was pretty important because after 140 years of being, you know, after they were carted off to, to Babylon, there was no protection. Jerusalem was very vulnerable to attack. And the importance of that is, especially in those days, the Jews uh, believed that, that God, God came and he rested in the temple. That's where he actually was worshipped the locus of his worship. And so to be able to worship meant that they had to worship in safety. And yet that was always at threat because the walls were broken down. And if you look in your Bibles, look at uh, Psalm, verse, Psalm 122. If you just open up your Bibles and just open up right in the middle and you'll pretty much land in Psalms, Psalm 122, and you'll see really the perspective the Jews had of the importance of worshiping in Jerusalem. Psalm 122, and I'll start in verse 2, and this was a psalm that was sung as the, the Jews went up to Jerusalem as they, they sang and they worshiped and they prayed. It's called one of the Psalms of Ascent. And Psalm 122, verse 2 says, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem built as a city that's bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord as is decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. 
Their thrones for judgment were set in the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be with your walls and security within your towers. For your brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is something that we can still pray because Jerusalem is still one of the most contested, if not the most contested city in the world. Now, we don't have to worship in Jerusalem, right? Because Jesus says those who worship him, God, the true God will worship him in spirit and in truth. We can worship wherever. But back then, that worship was broken. And so how do we apply this in our lives? How do we mourn over broken worship? Well, I'll start by asking, are there threats to your worship of God? Are there threats to your worship of God? Uh, and now, I'm not trying to launch a grenade and start a worship war and say, I'm not talking about your, having your favorite songs. We try to worship and sing one another's songs in worshiping God. Our, our worship is trying to be Godward. And so we, we think it's uh, a great practice here that we, we sing one another's songs. And, and at times, that means it might not be your favorite song, but it's actually more worshipful. And you say, boy, I'm really blessed. When, when Kyle is singing his favorite song, even though that's not my favorite. And then that's an act of submission and love. That's what we believe here in regards to worship. But that's, that's not the greatest threat to worship. And you might think, well, what's the greatest threat to worship? Well, the, the, another threat could be, well, church buildings. You know, there's... Um, broken down or destroyed. Like, think about how much uh, the people in France when Notre Dame back, back in the spring was uh, burning, right? And how devastating that was. That seemed like a threat to worship. But it's not about buildings. That's not the greatest threat. And what about religious freedom? Well, religious freedom and losing some of religious freedom, that's not the biggest threat to worship. The biggest threat to worship are idols. Idols defined as anything that we try to replace God with. Things that we run to for comfort and satisfaction. That's the biggest uh, threat in my life to worship. Because instead of worshiping God, I'll start to worship these idols. And so these walls in Jerusalem were to act somewhat like a guardrail, a, a physical symbol of our guardrail. And in our lives, we need to make sure that we get rid of idols, that we have Jesus Christ as our focus. Today, it's not the walls and gates that we need to be so concerned about, but making sure that our focus is on Jesus himself. Jesus eliminated all the obstacles of tradition and man-made rules that kept people from worshiping God. And now we can enter the Holy of Holies because he himself is the gate. He himself is the door. Check this out in John chapter 10, verses 7 through 9. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and, and in and out and find pasture. It's Jesus who's the way to God. 
Jesus is offering us passageway to God and to make our worship holy and whole, not broken down with idols. So if there's idols in your life, get rid of them. They are a barrier in your life. Crises are opportunities for God's to, God to work. There have been numerous times where our church has faced crisis and because for whatever reason God was so gracious to us, we remind ourselves, guess what? There's a problem. Well, God, what are you going to do about it? We turned to God in prayer. We didn't panic. We prayed. And God has done many things, miraculous things. We need to remember as we studied this summer that Jesus' words, Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's always a future and a hope that God gives us. So we need to pray for the safety of our family, the salvation of our family, and the safety of our families, in addition to our broken worship. You see, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, we discover it wasn't just the walls that were broken, but the gates were destroyed. It should bother us that so many commands of God in our culture are being disregarded. I mean, people are hurting themselves through sexual morality and greed and pride and prayerlessness and disregard for parents and loving themselves only. And whatever else comes to mind, write that down. Pray for it this week. Many of the gates that are protective need to be restored. And today is a call for us to weep and to cry out to God and say, God, enough is enough. I'm tired of seeing robbing and stealing, and pride in my life and in others. And I want you to restore that. Give us that eternal safety that goes beyond physical safety. Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, who's here to, who here has heard of World Vision? He once prayed this prayer, Lord, break my heart for the things that breaks yours. That's a psalm that we even have, have saying uh, there's a line in the, the song Hosanna. As we head into the communion table, may we be reminded that we come as a people who were shame, in shame and troubled. But our great brother Jesus, he prayed for us. He mourned. He came and he rescued us. He left. He left the capital of heaven and he came and he rescued us. And he is the one who has healed our broken worship. By becoming the gate that was destroyed by our sin. And yet, he's been restored to his, his rightful place through his resurrection. He's no longer on the cross. And we don't need a crucifix to remind us. As C.S. Lewis said, I need Christ and not something that resembles him. He's saying this, C.S. Lewis, in the context of losing his own, his own wife. He says, a really good picture might in the end be a snare, a horror, and an obstacle. So this bread and this juice can only give a taste of more of what we want, and that's to be with Jesus forever and ever, to worship him forever and ever, to live in that continued safety. We can run back to him constantly because Jesus rose from the grave. Think about it. If, if he would have just stayed on earth, we couldn't all run to him for constant safety, right? He'd be in other parts of the globe. But because he went to heaven, 
and he's given us his Holy Spirit, we can now run to him constantly and be safe. As we enter into this time of passing out the bread first and then the cup, may we mourn over our sin, confess it, and receive God's grace and forgiveness. Mourn over your troubled family. Mourn over your broken worship and lack of safety. But find hope in all these things through Jesus Christ. The crisis you are facing should cause you not to panic, not to panic, but to pray. Pray to the only one who can truly help. Let's go to him in prayer. God, we, we come to you in prayer seeking your holy face. We come to Jesus, the one who can rescue our families, the one who can reestablish holy and whole truth and worship in our lives. And God, the only one who can be our gate and show us the commands that are not burdensome, but actually help us to live right before you. We ask all these things in your Holy Spirit, praising your great name. Amen.